I'd like to invite you to open up to Acts chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible sitting in front of you that you're more than welcome to to use. If you don't own a Bible, we would be thrilled to give that to you as, as our gift to you. So feel free to take that. If you're new with us, we have a little card there as well that we'd love to just have you fill that out, get an email from you. Uh, we won't spam you. We have a, a, a spam covenant where we won't spam you. But just love to get to know who you are. Uh, if you're if you're veterans with us, you know to be able to use that as a way to just communicate with the with the staff. We love to pray over those. How many of you, you don't even need to raise your hand, but how many of you would say that you keep up with current events? Basically, what, what, that, what that could mean is a lot of different things, right? Some people immediately think news, world news. Um, I was with uh, my daughter yesterday, and for her, it means, you know, Snapchatting your Starbucks drink before you drink it. That's those are current events, right? Keeping track of what everyone's eating or drinking. And, you know, in our family, it used to be that if you didn't eat right away, it was because it was too hot. But now it's because we have a poor Wi-Fi signal, and so you got to wait. Wait for that picture to upload before you can eat anything, because you got to get that out. Uh, some of you, that means sports. For some of you, that means, you know, stocks. So when I throw that out there, you keep up with current events, that could mean a lot of different things, right? Who reports what's going on? And then how you interpret that really shapes your worldview. Think about it for a moment. If you were to answer this question, is the world better or worse off than it was five years ago? My hunch is that you would cite current events to build your argument. The world is way worse than it was five years ago. Why? Well, because, and you would begin to cite current events, right? And the same person could actually cite the same events and say the world is a way better place, and here's why. And they would start to cite current events. But you see that who reports the current events and how you interpret those goes a long way to shaping your worldview. I bring this up because the Bible reports not just historical events. Many people say, well, you can't take the Bible literally. Well, the Bible is a book, much like other things that we read, that has a lot of different kinds of literature in it. And it very clearly has historical literature in it. It goes through great pains, actually, to mark out places and people and historical events happening such that in, in, in all the ancient documents, the Bible stands alone in scholars' minds as to how it has tracked history. So it goes to great pains to track and report history. But do you know the Bible doesn't just report history? It also adds commentary to that history. That is, it adds its own interpretation of what was going on with that history. In Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 17, this is an example of someone in the book of Acts, New Testament church times, looking back on history and things that we're going to read about. Our little period of history is mentioned here. Let me read it for you. He says, The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arms, he led them out. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, you should recognize that as the book of Joshua, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years, and after that, he gave them judges until the prophet. We're in the book of Judges this morning. We've just begun a new series. We're a couple of weeks into it, and this little line from Acts is referring to our historical period of judges. And after that, he gave them 
judges. Do you see from this passage how God is active in current events? Just from this passage in Acts, he chose, he made, he led, he put up with, he destroyed, and he gave. Do you see God moving in history? Now, those same events could be recorded devoid of God, correct? Yeah. The same events that go on around us can be reported completely devoid of God. Judges chapter 1 that we looked at last week is kind of the historical geopolitical events that occurred. It rattles off what happened with each tribe and, and who they were driving out and how it went. Remember that from last week? Judges 2 provides commentary about what's going on. So in a way, Judges has two introductions. It has Judges 1 and it has Judges 2 and they sit kind of in parallel. After this week, we're going to start looking at the Judges themselves if you want to read on ahead. But Judges 2 gives the theological implications for the events. Chapter 1, here's the events. Here's what went on. Chapter 2, here's what God was up to in those events. Think about this. They're sitting side by side in the Bible. They're a little bit like two people sitting side by side in a commentary booth. One's the play-by-play guy. One's the color commentator. Sports fans, you tracking? Right? One guy's just giving it like it is. The other one is saying, here's why that's interesting. Here's what's going on. Here are the nuanced stories happening around that. That's a little bit of what Judges 1 and 2 is like. Here's why I bring this up and spend some time on it this morning. As we, Christians, as we process current events, it's so important that we go beyond historical, geopolitical events happening and the opinions of the day. There will be people reporting things. There will be people offering up their opinions. The Christian ought to ask, God, what are you up to? The Christian ought to read their news and their Bible and have them open simultaneously. It's so important that we ask God, what are you up to? Not so we can be in the know, but so that we can join in with God and be a part of what he is doing in history. All right, chapter 2. Go back to chapter 2 in the book of Judges. And the first five verses essentially are God announcing his discipline. Kids, this is like when your parents use your middle name. That always meant big trouble for me. If my, if all three names were, were getting used, judgment has come, right? I mean, I knew there was a problem. That rarely got used in other situations. Uh, this is essentially what God is doing here in the opening verses of chapter 2. Uh, the author here mentions the place Gilgal, and he's highlighting the difference. An angel of the Lord came to Gilgal and Joshua as well, but it was announcing victory. Gilgal was the main camp for Joshua, where all this victory emanated from. Gilgal was the place where they had entered into a covenant with God. That's like getting married to God. It's entering into a vow. And now you see, Judges chapter 2, in the first verse, that the angel has come to announce defeat. Why? Really simple reason. The people had broken covenant. They'd broken their vow. So now Gilgal was no longer a place of blessing. It was no longer a place where victory was going to emanate from. It was going to be a place of defeat. And the sole reason was because they've broken their their covenant. Look at verse 2. But you have not obeyed my voice. He recounts the covenant. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? This is God announcing what's going on. The people of Israel started off devoted, but now they were just deluded. This place of covenant this place of blessing this place of promise had now became had now become a place uh, instead of blessing of cursing the defeat of the israelites was caused 
by lack of spiritual vitality. It was caused by a lack of staying single-mindedly focused on the Lord. It wasn't due to lack of size or strength or lack of chariots or lack of military strategy. It was only due to the fact that they had left their first love. You know, I think every church ought to remember the lessons that we see in the book of Judges. Churches tend to strive for bigger and bigger size. Churches tend to bemoan the fact that, oh, we're just not big enough. We don't have a big enough budget to make an impact in this community. Who drove the people out in front of the, the Israelites? It was God all along. Well, we need to strategize more. We need to, we need to gather around and get more meetings and, and, and really get, you know, some flow charts going. That'll, that'll help us do it. I'm not against any of that. But is that where the victory lies? Absolutely not. If you're doing that in favor of being on your knees in prayer and saying, God, unless you're with us, we're not moving. Because unless you're with us, we're not making any impact in here. Churches would do well to learn from the nation of Israel. Before we jump into kind of the meat of the text, I want to bring up the word anger. Because nine times in the book of Judges, it mentions that God is angry. And three of those times is right here in chapter 2. Some of you have had anger thrown at you and abused at you, and so you immediately flinch at it and, and, and think it's, it's, it's by definition something bad. Many mistakenly think that anger is the opposite of love. That can be at times, but sometimes anger is the outworking of love. Verse 14 is a place that it mentions that the Lord's anger was kindled. It was kindled because... Evil was there, and evil can't be blessed or ignored. It's not loving to ignore evil. In verse 15, God's anger uh, that he describes was him being faithful, true to what he had promised. I I covenanted with you. I promised these things to you. And now that those aren't happening, I'm following through. Any faithful parent who follows through on discipline is being godlike. If you've laid out, here's, here's what this is. Choose blessing. Choose life. Please, child. And if not, there's going to be some consequences. There's going to be discipline. Because I love you. A non-loving parent is apathetic. They don't care. You go do whatever you want. I don't care. A following through parent is being godlike. All right, in verses 6 through 10, remember Rocky 2 from last week? How Judges kind of reaches back into Joshua and there's some overlap. It kind of replays some of the scenes from Joshua. Well, that's a little bit what's going on in Judges 6 through 10. It's reaching back and describing some of the things happening in Joshua's day. And it really uh, brings up this idea of second generation syndrome. Uh, Second generation syndrome is this. It's when rock solid faith of one generation fails for whatever reason to pass on to the next generation. We see this in our nation's history. The first generation of people who, who birthed this nation had a passionate on fire faith. And if you read our history, some of the great revivalists uh, in American history uh, were raised up by God because utter apathy began to take place in the very next generation of Americans. They began to slip away and fall away. We don't only see it in the U.S., but we see it in the Bible. Look at verse 10 of Judges. It talks about Joshua and his generation dying. And then it says this, And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Think about Joshua's generation for a moment. Here they are telling stories of victories like they mattered. Shani, come around here. Let me tell you the story. And they start, they start telling you the story, right? 
there he was. I was a pipsqueak kid, and God tapped me on the shoulder and handed me the ball, and there I was amongst the giants, and he said, run, I'm going to block for you. And so there I was, running in the land of the giants, and God was knocking people over, and he could go all the way. And I got a touchdown, I got a victory that had no business getting a victory, but I got a victory. And it was all God. And by the time Grandpa's done talking, you see tears coming down his eyes. He's telling these stories to the next generation like they mattered. You know why? Because they did. Grandpa understands you wouldn't be here, sonny boy, if God hadn't showed up and delivered us. I wonder if it would look a little something like this. And he's wearing the number 22, guys. It is Jack Hoffman of Team Jack coming out of the field right now in this fourth down and short. For the red team. Jack Hoffman has been adopted really by this football team. A young man who has battled brain cancer is on the field right now for the Huskers. One more snap for Taylor Martinez, too, who will hand it off to Jack. Taylor Martinez so Taylor gets the shotgun set, gives it to Jack. Here he goes. <laughs> He's got blockers out in front. There he goes. running to midfield. Listen to this crowd. As Jack Hoffman, a young man that, as I mentioned, has really been adopted by this football team to score a touchdown. Oh, wow. What a moment. And both benches. All right, you'll never read the book of Joshua again the same way, right? You'll think of that little kid running down the field going, he had no business. Now, there might be some tempted in that generation um, to, to tell the story and kind of rewrite history. There might be some that said, I made this sweet cut, and it, it threw off the defense, and I started running. But what would the rest of that generation do? They would shut that down in a heartbeat. That wasn't you making a sweet cut. You were going the wrong way. God had to grab you and redirect you to where he was going and what he was doing. So you have generation one trying to describe, trying to pass on to generation two, this great God that they serve. The mighty acts that God has done. Second generation syndrome begins to set in, and it's marked by some things. It's marked by complacency and apathy and lukewarmness. Isn't it tempting kids to go, oh, Grandpa, I've heard this story before. It was really great the first time, but it's kind of worn off, and that doesn't seem like that big of a deal anymore. Lukewarmness is, is what characterizes it. If you could put, boil it down to a word, it would be whatever, right? That's what the second generation syndrome starts to stir up in us. The problem with generation two is not that they don't know about Yahweh, it's that they don't know Yahweh personally. Last week we talked about the idea that expedience produces apostates, those who turn away. But expedience doesn't, isn't the only thing, but also amnesia. Uh, amnesia is where you forget stuff, right? And sometimes we tend to think that us moderns are far less forgetful than people of the past. This wasn't some ancient problem of those forgetful Israelites that just kept forgetting what God had done. Let me fast forward you to New Testament times for a moment. Here's the apostle Peter warning the church of something. He warns the church of false leaders who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them. 
It's fascinating in the New Testament to see how many times remembrance and remember and don't forget are brought up. You know why? Because people in the Old Testament times were forgetful. People in New Testament church times were forgetful. And guess what? We need reminding too. We're forgetful as well. Second generation syndrome starts with passive apathy, but it soon turns to active denial. Look in your Bibles at Judges chapter 2, verse 7. It says, the people served the Lord. Now, they had uh, degenerated to the point of verse 6 of chapter 3. Look down at chapter 3, verse 6, where it says that they served their little g gods. What happened between the people served the Lord and now they're serving little g gods over here a chapter later? There's a way to combat this for us, and I think that all of us need to be aware of this and combating it. When we take communion, when we sing songs, when we sit under biblical teaching, what we're doing right here is we're remembering. We are actively remembering. We're actively saying, I need a reminder lest I forget, lest my love grow cold, lest I get enticed by other little g-gods around here, and there's plenty of them. Each generation must experience God afresh personally. No one can ride the coattails of their parents' faith on into heaven, into a relationship with God. That's not how it works. A part of why we bring the kiddos in uh, at least once a month to say, come and join us, come be a part of big church, is to say that, that what we're doing in here involves you, that you guys are, are a part of this community. It's imperative that you guys get this. By way of review, I showed you three keys uh, to kind of unlock a little bit of what's happening in Judges. If you wanted to pick one key verse of the whole book, it might be this one here. It's mentioned a couple of different places, but it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Do you know how you come from serve the Lord to serve little g-gods? You just start doing what, what you see fit. How, how well does Jack Hoffman see over his own blocking line? Not very well. And that's us. When we direct our lives, that's what happens. I also taught you a word to remember. This word is apostasy. It's a defector. It's one who would renounce. It's a turncoat. And the story of Judges is a giant warning, flashing neon sign warning against apostasy. Many in this room have made a profession of faith. They said, I will never turn away. I will love the Lord Jesus Christ for the rest of my day. I'll never forget or grow cold to the incredible rescue that he provided in my life. And if we're honest, sitting here today, we'd say, wow, that pinches a little bit. Because I think I'm growing cold. I think I'm one. How do I not be one that would fall away? We looked at this last week. Here's how you do it. You keep going. That's it. You keep after Jesus. And you also trust in him to do his part of being faithful to complete what he's begun in you. Finally, by way of review, and this is what I wanted to bring up, is this cycle of sin that we see in Judges. There's this cycle that we see over and over and over, and almost any commentary you read is going to bring this cycle up because it's just so prominent for us. And in chapter 2, we get sort of a mini version of what we're going to read and see played out in history over the next several chapters. The cycle is blessing and then disobedience and then chastening, that's like spanking, uh, and then repentance and then deliverance. 
And so we see this cycle happen over and over. Let me just read for you so you can kind of see the downward spiral. Look at verse 11 if you want to follow along. And it says this. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Those are sun gods. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashereth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to the plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of the surrounding enemies so they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Do you see the down, down, down? We did what was evil, then we abandoned, then we did, you know, started worshiping, and on and on it goes. In verse 16, there's a shift. It says this. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. If you're watching this on a cycle, it might look like this. Down, 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 down it goes. They're at rock bottom. Then the Lord. Right? And so the, so the process begins its way out. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which the fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved by, moved to pity by their groaning because of those who had afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. If you want to track judges, it would look like this. First sin cycle is here. God rescues them. Next sin cycle is a little bit lower. By, by the sixth cycle, we're way down here. It gets progressively more degenerate as you go generation after generation. Sin is what starts this cycle over again. God brings them back up to a place of blessing, and what starts the downward slide in the book of Judges starts the downward slide in our lives. Amen? Sin is where we can trace back to, wow, that's really when my life started to go off the rails. Answer me this. What is the right formula for tango, you math majors? One plus one. It takes two to tango, right? It's, it's a really simple, some of you are like overthinking this. You're like, I'm a math major. Let me get, let me get my pen out. Um, it takes two to tango, not one and not three, right? We all agree with that? Okay. Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says this, that the creation of the world, that since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. I want you to watch a little something, and I want you to watch particularly for the female bird's response to what is happening on the screen, okay? Birds get the, the uh, tango formula here. The superb bird of paradise calls to attract a female. And he has more luck. But what does he have to do to really impress her? 
She retires to consider her verdict. It's hard not to feel deflated when even your best isn't good enough. Okay, now don't stay with me. Don't feel super bad for the guy bird, okay? There's, there's probably others out there. It takes two to tango. And God's design for husband and God's design for wife coming together and God's design in the bird kingdom is the same way that he reveals himself to us. It's not one part. It's not three. It's one plus one equals two. And they come together. And that's what this covenant that God has entered into the Israelites is all about. Here's, here's the big deal. What's the big deal about, about Israel breaking covenant with God? Here's the big deal. Israel stopped cleaving to her husband, namely God, and invited someone else into the dance. That's what goes on in Judges chapter 2. That's what we're going to see played out over and over again. That Israel invites others into this dance that God has wooed them into. It seems innocent enough. If you were writing a book on three steps to becoming pagan, it would look something like this. Number one, live among the Canaanites. Two, intermarry with them. Three, serve their gods. And what happens is each one of those seems a little bit innocent, but they lead right to the next. And before you know it, you have chapter 2, early in chapter 2, they serve the Lord. Early in chapter 3, they serve little g-gods. Why? Because they did these things and acclimated to the culture. Notice that they didn't stop worshiping God. They just added to worshiping God. I think that's one of the great uh, dangers and sins of the Christian church in America. It's not that we have Christians or people who made a profession of faith at a young age turning from that and completely going a different way. But I think if we look at our lives honestly, we would say, wow, we've diluted our covenant with God by adding to it. You may be asking yourself, what's wrong with continuing devotion to the living God with a lesser devotion to something else on the side. Isn't God being a little bit egotistical here? Isn't he being kind of controlling? If you're married in the room, you might want to turn to your spouse right now and ask if there's room for another. Say, listen, I'll still be devoted to you most and best, but every other Tuesday night, I'm going on a date with someone else. Is there room for that? No! We'll all have words that says, no, there's not room for that. Is the spouse being controlling or egotistical to demand exclusivity? Absolutely not. The spouse is being godlike. When they say, absolutely not, it's one to one. So what was so alluring to the people of God? One of the hard things we have is trying to get our head around, uh, around uh, what would kind of entice them. How many of you uh, found yourself staring at the night sky last Sunday night? Anyone? Yeah, we were out there. Why? Why were you all doing that? Because <laughs> there were some cool clouds to see, yeah, yeah, that were illuminated at times by a really cool moon. Now, uh, I, took a, I took a little picture here with my cell phone. No, not really. <laughs> this is a picture of the moon that was out last week. And, and here's my question. Did, did any of you feel tempted to worship the moon last week? You, you were you were maybe awed by it if you could see it, right? But but chances are you didn't 
You didn't ask the moon for wisdom or direction. You didn't seek comfort or peace from the moon, right? And so what happens is, we can be tempted to think, why on earth would people ever do that? I get that it's a pretty fantastic celestial being and it's pretty marvelous to see, but I would never worship it. And the, and the implication is, I'm way above that. Let me take you somewhere for a second. What if every single one of your neighbors had spent weeks planning block parties to celebrate this special moon that was going on? What if there were songs being sung about the moon, to the moon, dance, food, all kinds of stuff happening? Here's my hunch. Moon worship isn't familiar to our culture, and so we don't feel any temptation towards it whatsoever. But I think year after year after year after year after year of people going out and partying and celebrating and talking to the moon, it would cause us to peek out of our drapes a tiny bit and go, I wonder what we're missing. I wonder if there's something to this, this thing. I kind of like block parties, and free food is always good. So, so what happens is that this is the neighborhood that the Israelites moved into. This is the scenario that was, that was facing them. I worked with international students for a long time, and, and international students found it hard to believe some of the things that we do. Here's, here's a few of them. They found it hard to believe that we would eat food for comfort or entertainment. Some of them came from places where, where eating was, was kind of a utilitarian thing. It was fuel, and, and if it had a little bit of flavor, that was an added bonus. So to go eat for comfort or to go find peace in food seemed really odd to them. They're also amazed at how many places of worship to food that we have as you just drive around the city and walk through the grocery store. They also found it really strange that people would sacrifice so much watching people play games. They would, they would spend hard-earned money going to temples called stadiums. And they would be amazed that, that these people would, would evangelize other people towards their sports team, uh, better and stronger than almost any religion they had ever seen before. They were as passionate about their sports team being better than yours and why you should like them. They also found it interesting that we got so hung up on status symbols to boost our identity. The idea of buying stuff that we don't really need to impress people we don't really like. And so at the time when I was working with them, SUVs were the big thing. So people would buy SUVs and they go, yeah, but they don't ever use them for off-road. I'm like, that's not really the point. The point is, I have a bigger, batter car than you, and I'm going to put spinner rims on it, so there, right? And they couldn't get their head around that. They thought that was really, really strange. It was really healthy to hang around international students, because when you're in a different culture, it's very easy to spot what's worshipped. When you're in your own culture, it's very, very difficult. Here's a thought. To get a glimpse of what might be, doesn't mean that every one of these is idol worship. But to just get kind of a sense of what, of what might be an idol in our culture, go take a stroll sometime just down the, the magazine aisle rack at Barnes and Nobles before it closes. I think they're almost all closed. But if it still exists, go find, find an actual uh, brick and mortar store that has this. And what you'll see on the covers of these things are promises to get out of your current discomfort or misery and promises for some really spectacular reward. Heaven and hell right there in a $3.25 magazine. It kind of gives you a little sense of what, what is trying to be grabbed at in our culture. Certainly, a lot of our magazines wouldn't, wouldn't play well in other cultures, right? It just wouldn't entice them one bit. So, Judge for Yourself is our series title. And uh, as we kind of come to a close with chapter 2, you get to be the judge as you read um, a different group of people doing things. 
Um, we have exhibit A here, which I'm going to hold by the stem because I don't want to touch the rest of it. Sin produces slavery. And lest you think that is just sort of a cute metaphor, when you read Judges chapter 2, where God allows plunderers to come and then allows other nations to enslave them, you see this lived out in a very tangible, real way. Sin produces slavery. It looks good initially. You take a bite, you feel okay for a season. But eventually... The hour, the apple turns bad. When you look at the Israelites, you know, there's a sense that we have that sometimes we think, you know, I'm, I'm messing up now, but a change of scenery will, 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 will really help me out. I'm messing up now, but that's because I'm uncomfortable. I'm messing up now, but that's because I don't have enough funds. Think about the Israelites for a second. Did a change of scenery help their stiff-necked ways? No. Did more prosperity help their stiff-necked ways. No. They were wandering around in the desert. Now they had the land flowing in milk and honey. Did added comfort change their ways? No. If anything, if you look at a stiff-necked people in the desert, you see a sheer obstinate people in the promised land. It made it worse. So don't believe the lie that if my circumstances were just different, I know I'd have a different attitude. Change of scenery, same attitude for the Israelites. Probably a lie for us as well. The mercy of God is seen in Judges 2. One of the things we said is this is a, this is a down book in some ways because we see all this failure. But what's beautiful is we see the mercy of God. There's no apparent repentance in this particular case. No coming to their senses in the pig slop and returning to the Father. It just says that God raised up judges to save them. What happened when God raised up judges that I just read? They didn't listen to them once they got raised up. This is really each one of us. Verse 15 says, in terrible distress. And then verse 16, God raised up rescuers. This is really the Christian story. Our own sin and fallenness cause us to be in terrible distress. We are powerless against the sin and the fear and the worry that enslave us. Our lives are literally being looted by sin. But God. That's the, that's the Christian story. God intervenes. Listen to this passage in Ephesians. It's probably familiar to you. But listen to it in light of the Israelite story. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace that you have been saved. You're about to witness a baptism. And baptism really is kind of a picture of this transaction that I just read here in Ephesians. God calls, we respond in trust, we die with Him, and we're raised in newness of life. Never again to be enslaved to that old way of life. And that's a picture of what baptism is. What's beautiful is the two physical things that Jesus instituted before He left the earth was baptism, which is a one-time event, and communion, which is an ongoing event. In baptism, we see, in essence, a picture of what it might be like on your wedding day. It's a public vow saying, I vow, yes, I do. And that's what happens once. You don't get married over and over and over. You get married once. 
and that covenant lasts forever. But in communion, it's an ongoing remembrance. What does Jesus say? Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus thought it pretty important to remember your wedding day, to remember the covenant. Why? Because he knows we're easily enticed. And he won't allow anyone to cut in. If you find yourself in terrible distress today, like verse 15 clearly says, this offer goes out to you. Maybe you're realizing that your God has been exposed for what he or she is, and that is powerless. Maybe you've come to your senses and realized that that pleasure or power are terrible taskmasters, and they never really deliver as promised. Maybe you're sitting in here and you say, you know, to be honest, I've cheated on God. I'm the whoring nation of Israel. Literally, it's a married prostitute. And you say, I wonder if God would have me back. Let me tell you, friends, the offer goes out to you. A simple prayer found in Romans says this, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Friends, if that's you, um, as I pray right now, join in with me. Receive that offer. If you've wandered from him, come back. Today's the day to hear his voice. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you, God, for your rescue that found us in terrible distress and acted on our behalf without us even knowing that we were in need. God, I pray for every soul in this room that, God, that we would be sensitive to what you're doing, that we'd remember the big story of rescue, but God, also that we'd remember the quiet, ongoing care of your grace. God, we're here this morning because of your grace. We've walked in here because you've given us the strength to do so. And God, when there's a scare on our life, we're more appreciative of that. When things are cruising along, it's easy to get complacent. God, shake us out of that. God, for those who don't know you and want to receive you this morning, pray, Lord, with childlike faith that they would just open their hands and say that, yes, I receive the gift of eternal life. I receive the gift of forgiveness of my sins. I do proclaim you as Lord Jesus. And I do believe that, God, you raised him from the dead. And this is the path of salvation. God, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.